Thanks, Tana. Thank you, worship team and Deirdre and everybody who's participated this morning. It's been encouraging so far. Thank you. Uh, we are in our third series, excuse me, our third message in this series on Habakkuk. And really the theme of Habakkuk is um, how do we think about God and approach life and, and continue to live when God appears to be absent when God appears to be silent in, in, the, in our prayers and in our crying out in the, midst of our, in the midst of our suffering. About the last eight months, we have seen the, the downfall of people that would be considered untouchables in our culture in the wake of the Me Too movement. We've seen media moguls, entertainment moguls, elite professionals, politicians, all men that I've read about to this point, um, falling because justice has finally caught up. And even after decades of abuse, uh, their time has come. In Time Magazine's Person of the Year for 2017, they presented as Person of the Year all of the women that came forward in this uh, Me Too phenomenon. In the part they had about Ashley Judd, who was one of the first to um, go public with her, her narration of her experience with Harvey Weinstein, um, she explains, were we supposed to call some fantasy attorney general of moviedom? There wasn't a place for us to report these experiences. And if you read that article or have been paying attention at all to the news and that story, it's just what you heard, and it's, it's similar. It's similar with the, the Bill Cosby story, uh, Dr. Nasser at the University of Michigan, or was it Michigan State? I can't remember. Um, anyway, the, he violated and abused all those young gymnasts. Um, the stories you hear from these women are... Uh, stories of long seasons of abuse and even longer seasons of waiting for justice. And many times, in, in fact, it in, seems like in most all of these cases, they didn't have, it didn't seem, they didn't seem to have a, a, a way of recourse, a way of vindication, a way of obtaining justice. And the Time commentary read, it says, when movie stars don't know where to go, what hope is there for the rest of us? What hope is there for the janitor who's being harassed by a coworker, but remains silent out of fear she'll lose the job she needs to support her children? For the administrative assistant who repeatedly fends off a superior who won't take no for an answer. For the hotel housekeeper who never knows as she goes about replacing towels and cleaning toilets if a guest is going to corner her in a room she can't escape. And so I, I think they're obviously their, their um, reflection around movie stars is it seems like movie stars have all of the attention and resources they would need to bring these kinds of things to justice, but that didn't seem to be the case. And I think that, that um, I, I know that there are women in, in the church who have experienced these kinds of injustices. But to some degree, all of us experience um, unfair situations, oppressive authorities, cultural powers, systemic injustices, okay, at varying levels, okay? Um, one person's suffering is never going to be exactly like another person's suffering, but the, the 
experience of these kinds of injustices where it doesn't seem that we have an avenue of recourse. It doesn't seem like um, we can go so to see someone or talk to someone and have this taken care of. Or if we do go to somebody, uh, we know that it's, it's very unlikely, if not completely impossible, that anything's going to be done because of the places of, of power or the positions that these people often reside in. The, the process that we've seen with this Me Too movement um, and the other um, stories of injustices um, coming to justice and people that have committed injustices coming to justice uh, are really an example of Habakkuk's response excuse me, of God's response to Habakkuk. Last week, at the end of chapter 1, we saw Habakkuk really leave God with, with two questions. He'd been praying what was probably years. He had lived a little bit during the time of King Josiah, which was Judah's last good king. And the next two kings after Josiah were sons of Josiah, but evil. And were along the lines of, of a king like Manasseh, who was several generations before Josiah, and was uh, guilty of, of sacrificing his own children to foreign gods, of tr tremendous and widespread bloodshed in the city of Israel, and all sorts of other kinds of things that go along with that, economic oppression against the poor, etc. And so... Habakkuk lived during a time of great prosperity, and of what the scriptures say was Israel, Judah's best king, period, even better than David. He, he had instituted Passover again, which had never been celebrated after they left Egypt. But then he's in this period of time after Josiah where everything has just gone back to absolute horrible conditions violence, bloodshed, child sacrifice, etc. And so he prays and he starts praying and he's praying and he's praying and he's praying and goes on for several years praying and God is not answering. And so finally, which is the subject of the first sermon, he is crying out. And the text says, as if a woman who was in labor cries out. All right, so it is, it is an angry prayer. It is a tire uh, expression of, of being tired, of being frustrated, and of, and of waiting for God to do something because it was not in God's character to, to suffer along these types of injustices in his, in his opinion. And so God finally does answer him, and God says, I'm going to bring in the wicked nation of Babylon to destroy Judah and Jerusalem. And this kind of threw Habakkuk off. Why would you use an unrighteous people to judge and punish, and he says a righteous man, but it's, a little, it's less unrighteous of a people. And he, and he, and he realize, realizes that he is in this dispute with God. And oftentimes, we feel like we should be, be or we want to be in a dispute with God, or that we are in a dispute with God. Um, and, it, and we, we talked about this a little bit last week, but there is a tradition in Scripture called the dispute. Job was in dispute. Many of the Psalms reflect a dispute that we enter into with God. And Habakkuk was in a dispute. And God's answer to him energized him 
All right, not energized in a way that he was excited and happy about the answer. He was excited and happy for the fact that God did answer him. And the fact that God answered him meant that, that he was entering now into this engagement. And so he left God with two questions. Um, are you really going to use this nation to punish us? And, and second... You're raising up Babylon to punish us? Babylon has met no equal. They come up to a city or a new nation, and they completely overthrow it, and they move on like the wind to the next one. And he says, are you going to continue to just let them destroy nation after nation after nation after nation forever? Those are the two questions. Now, we're not, in our, in our, in our own experiences of, of suffering and seemingly uh, desert periods when we feel like God isn't answering us. We're not usually dealing with these, this, this level of circumstances. We're not, we're not going to God. Oh, we do to some degree. I think many of us are praying for our nation and are praying for the nations of the world. But uh, I wouldn't, it, it's, it's unlikely that most of us in here are experiencing suffering, extensive suffering because of where our nation is at. Um, certainly we're not in the place where Israel is at. But again, we all experience suffering and injustices, and so I think we need to take Habakkuk's questions and, and, answer them, and ask them for ourselves. Um, God, I'm not, I'm not quite sure about the circumstances you're using to do whatever it is you want to do. Um, and are, are you ever going to bring this to an end? Are you ever going to bring our suffering, my suffering, to an end? And so God answers him again, and that's where our text comes today. And he says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. Okay, not only is this now just a personal message to Habakkuk, because this, this whole book is just it, between God and Habakkuk. And it's, it's Habakkuk's spiritual odyssey that we've called it. And we can see ourselves, and we need to put ourselves into this same same sort of uh, odyssey. But God is now telling him, hey, write this down. It is going to go beyond you. It is going to go beyond you. And writing it down gives it a greater sense of the fact that it's going to happen, of, that it is true, that God is going to stick to his word. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems slow. Wait for it. It will surely come and it will not delay. There is an appointed time. There is an appointed time. And this is, this is one of the applications that we need to pull away from this engagement that Habakkuk is having with God. Um, our moments of suffering, our seasons of suffering, are tied to other things. They are tied to other people. They are tied to other circumstances. Oftentimes they are tied to our family. They are maybe tied to our work. They may be, they're tied to other people and circumstances and situations. And most of the time, we don't see the full spread or scope of all of the connections. But there is an appointed time. There is an appointed time where our, our, our sufferings will be relieved Okay? And I'm not just talking about ultimately when Christ returns or when we die. All right? 
If we, are, if we are in Christ and if we are a child of God and we are walking in him and pursuing him, our sufferings will be relieved at a time, at a time that makes sense for all of the other things that God is doing. And that's why I called the title of the sermon today, It's Not All About You. God is doing something in Israel, in Jerusalem, in Judah, in Babylon, in all of the other nations. And it doesn't fully express, the scriptures don't fully express all of the other dynamics that are going on. But there's other things going on. And he says it's always going to seem slow. He doesn't say, you know, it's going to seem fast. We never have that trouble with God. It just seems like answering, the answers to our prayers always seems like it's going to be slow. God acknowledged this. It's going to seem slow, but wait for it. It's not delayed. It's coming upon its appointed time, but it's not delayed. It's going to come at the right time. It's going to come at the right time. And to shortcut the process interrupts all these processes. See, oftentimes when we get anxious and fearful, usually it's when we see that our suffering is getting to the point or the conditions around us that is that are causing our suffering, we see them coming to a point where um, I think we're afraid to go. And out of that fear and out of that anxiety, we'll start to take actions that are expressions of impatience rather than expressions of faith, rather than expressions of trust that God is doing something here that I don't fully see the scope of. That's not saying that we can't try to to do some things in our lives to make things better and to improve our circumstances. But oftentimes those things, uh, when they are worked out of impatience or fear and not sober-mindedness, not faith, not prayer, we, we usually prolong the process. We usually prolong the process and, and ultimately make our suffering even worse. We need to wait for the appointed time. And the test is going to come up here in terms of what, how do I know, how do I know when to take some action that's based upon faith, when to take some action, um, or when do we take action, or how can we evaluate our actions and, 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 and see that it's based upon fear or anger or anxiety. So God is going to continue to answer Habakkuk's questions. And the second question again is, are you just going to let this evil, oppressive nation keep destroying nation after nation after nation after nation endlessly and mercilessly? And and, and God says, it's going to happen. Yes, I'm using Babylon. But then he starts to talk about the character and nature of the wicked oppressor. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous... The righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And so he starts describing, he just uses the pronoun him here, but he's referring to this this wicked foe or this wicked oppressive ruler of this conquering nation. He says his soul, his soul is puffed up. Now, our souls 
It's the seat of our, of our being. It's the seat of, our, of, of, our, of, of who we are and where our personalities are coming from. And really, it's, it's, it's the place of our perceptions, okay? Our perceptions is how we see and interpret the things in the world. It's the place of our feelings, and our feelings are the expression of how our minds and bodies respond to the perceptions that we have. And then it's also the place of our affections, what we love and long for. So this person's soul, he says their soul is puffed up. So how they see things, how they feel about things, what they love and long for is driven literally by, and what they mean by puffed up is cocky and foolish. Everything revolves around them and accumulating everything for their own personal ambition. Cocky and foolish. That's actually what the Hebrew lexicon said. Cocky and foolish. Unwise. Foolish means that they are unwise in their dealings. They are not skillful in how they relate with people and the circumstances of their lives and their relationships. He says it is puffed up. So their perceptions, how they view the world, how they see and interpret reality is skewed. It's skewed so that everything is viewed in light of how, these, how can these people and circumstances all serve me? That's what it means to have an arrogant or cocky perception. And their feelings are all based upon whether or not things are going well for them personally and whether all things are coming into their service. And then what they love, what they love is themselves. What they love is themselves, and, and they have affection for and love and worship those things that are going to make their own lot better. That is where this person is at. And, and then God says that, this, that his soul is not upright. It is twisted and it is distorted. It is, it is perverted. It is not the soul of a person that essentially can last He's saying, he's saying to Habakkuk, there is a vulnerability within the soul of this wicked ruler. And then he says, the righteous shall live by faith. So in the immediate context, so this is one of the very significant verses quoted in the New Testament that, that helps support New Testament authors' argument that, that people under the law in ancient Israel still were under the rule of faith. And that faith has always been the expression of a people who are in pursuit of and following God. So it's a very, very popular and powerful verse used in the New Testament. So here it is right here. So in its immediate context, to live by faith means that you are, you're, you're, you're perceptions, how you interpret and see the world, your feelings, how your brain and body responds to what you perceive, and your affections, what you love and long for, are not driven by a, a, a foolish cockiness, but are driven by something else. They are driven by a faith, driven by faith. The righteous one, so the upright the twisted soul of the wicked ruler is perverted and corrupt. The righteous, the upright, okay, so those who have an upright soul live by faith. They live by faith. Now, so you have really two questions that come out of this. 
All right, well, what does it mean, to, first of all, to be righteous? And second of all, what does it mean to live by faith? From this, from, to this point in the scriptures, the, the concept of righteousness is, is something that is, one, given by God. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, I believe. It said that Abraham believed God, and then God credited it to him as righteousness. So Abraham's belief in what God said and aligned his life to what God said, that was the means through which Abraham became righteous. And in the Proverbs, the idea of a righteous person is somebody who, first of all, fears the Lord, which means they're orient, oriented to God on the basis of faith in him and his word and his promises. And then they live out a life that is just and equitable and fair. And not only good for themselves, but good for others. And you really get the sense out of the wisdom literature and all of the Old Testament that righteousness is a, a, a way of living life that pleases God and is right with him, but is also conducive to the formation and longevity of human relationships. And it leads to and is a, it is a source of energy to what the Proverbs and all of scriptures would say is a blessed and prosperous life. So the, the wicked, oppressive ruler of this violent, conquering nation has a vulnerability within his character that is eventually going to bring him down. And the righteous man, the righteous man lives by faith. Now, here's Habakkuk. All he can see is death and destruction in Jerusalem by the king of Israel, by the king of Judah himself. And then all he knows... <laughs> All he knows about the future of Jerusalem is that God is going to bring in the Babylonians, and they are even more violent and destructive and wicked than the king of Judah. So this is, this is what he is seeing. And God is telling him, Habakkuk, the righteous, those who are upright, those who long for a life that is at the same time pleasing to God, and, and, and conducive to the relationships in his, in his or her life, and, and what a life that leads to prosperity and blessing is going to have to step back from the circumstances and, and to orient their perceptions, okay? How you interpret the world, your feelings, what your mind and body does, okay? Our feelings are, we have feelings and thoughts almost immediately. Those come from our, from our soul. And then the things that we love, the things that we long for, the things that, that we pursue, these things are not driven by just what we see. The righteous person is going to have those things driven by faith. Faith, which is ultimately the, the belief that what God says is true. And that, 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 that confidence in what God says is true and in who God is, even though the circumstances do not appear to be the case, if there is a trust in, in who God is and what God says to be true, then and, that, and, and, that, and, and true faith is not just kind of a casual belief or acknowledgement. A true faith is 
I know this to be factual. I know this to be true. So much so that it leads to the, the making of decisions that are based upon that faith, that are based upon those things that God says are true. That's what it means to live by faith. And the, the two obstacles or other options to faith are licentiousness and legalism. And we see those here. We see those here in Habakkuk. And it's what the, as you see in the New Testament, this, this argument for faith in Christ and that our salvation and our means of righteousness on here on this, here on this earth and, our, and the living out of our, of our lives in Christ and for the future is all dependent upon faith. Licentiousness is the belief, okay, and this is, again, based upon perceptions, feelings, and loves. The licentious person believes that, that pleasure and the fulfillment of their senses or sensuality is the means of righteousness, is a means of obtaining a, fulfill, a fulfilled and complete and virtuous life. I'm just going to, whatever my body and my mind, my senses tells me is going to feel good, that's what I'm going to pursue. And that's the wicked ruler of the oppressive Babylonians. He is sensuous. He's licentious. The other side is a performance-based life, a life of self-discipline. I am going to order my life in such a way that I achieve a high, the highest performance level. And they oftentimes will say no to sensuality, say no to their feelings because they, they have a sense that following all of those sensual pleasures is going to lead into a self-destructive life. And so they're going to try to order and self-discipline themselves on the way to righteousness. And what happens with that is that you begin to establish all of these, these rules and structures and systems that not only you believe is needed to be a righteous person, but that everybody else in the world is needed. And it really becomes an evaluation on the basis of personality. And this is where Israel's going to become. And so you have, you have faith as this approach towards life where righteousness is a gift from God and not something that we can attain by our own performance, whether it's a performance towards sensuality or a performance towards self-discipline and, and, and order. You see, faith is this recognition that it is that righteousness is given by God. My ability to live right in this world is a gift from God, and it's based upon an orientation towards him and what he says that is true. And so we see that, he, so he's describing the character of this wicked ruler. He's not righteous, but the righteous man is going to live by faith. But then he goes into this, this other statement. He says, wealth and wine Excuse me, he says, wine is a traitor. Some translations will say wealth, but the big idea is this. On top of the corrupt personality, on top of the corrupt soul, he's also enamored by greed. And it provides another layer of blindness and deception. And it deceives him such that he just continues to pursue owning everything and everyone that he can. That's his approach. It is never satisfied. It is the definition of greed and materialism. There's always something more that's going to make me fulfilled. There's always something more that's going to give me a sense of things being right. Okay? 
My life will be complete if I can just have this. One more nation, one more city, a thousand more slaves, whatever it might be. Obviously, we don't think along those lines. We think of it in much smaller terms because none of us have massive armies that are taking over nations and enslaving people. So he's deceived by this, this, this greed and a corrupt soul. And what God says then, he says, woe to this person. And there are five different woes, and I'm not going to read them all again. But he essentially says this. There's five different ones. Woe to the conqueror of nations. In your conquering, you have been accumulating debt. And God says, I'm going to ask for that note to be paid. And the people that you have conquered will rise up and they will conquer you. And then he says, woe to him who builds from evil gain. In seeking life by killing others, and in in this woe, it's like you have built a fortress and a city to protect yourself. And you have killed others to do it. And now you are going to be killed. You will not be safe. Those people will overcome and conquer you. Woe to him who builds through slavery and bloodshed. What you have built will be destroyed. God is going to bring about the destruction of you because you have built through slavery and blood. There's similar themes in all five of these, but a little bit of a tweak on each one. And then it says, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth. Whereas the wicked, oppressive ruler thinks that he's going to conquer and enslave the entire world, God says, nothing is going to last except what I build. And I and my glory and my kingdom will cover the earth. The fourth woe, woe to him who lures people into alliances and then exploits them. They give the metaphor in the passage of, of and, and this is, we see this in our culture. This is what Bill Cosby did. You befriend people and then you intoxicate them and then you rape them. That's what God says you've done. Evil nation. You've formed alliances with people and then you've exploited them. And particularly, it's Lebanon. They formed an alliance with Lebanon. Lebanon was to the north of Israel and Judah. Lebanon has, has great forests and you need great forests to build ships and siege vessels and chariots and all these things. And so they would form alliances. And this was kind of a thing. <laughs> Nations, conquering nations would form alliances with Lebanon, and then they would betray them. They'd cut down all the forests and kill all the animals in the forests. And this kind of was a cycle throughout the ancient world. And God says, I'm bringing judgment upon you for the forests that you've demolished and for the animals that you've killed. And the final woe is woe to him who trusts in false gods and builds idols out of wood and metal that can't speak, that can't teach. They bring no profit. How can they be a god when you, as a person, have created them? And then he ends the passage, he says, God is in his holy temple, and all the world will be silent. So God is, when God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, he brought them into the promised land, and he destroyed nations with them. Why did God destroy nations with Israel? Because they were nations where bloodshed was the rule, violence was the rule, child sacrifice was the rule, they were oppressing the poor and the weak. So God used Israel to judge those nations. Israel became just like one of those nations. 
And now God is using other nations to destroy and bring judgment and punishment to Israel. And so, does this, does, does this principle, does this dynamic that we see here only apply to Israel and the nations around it? Or is it a principle that God has put into his order that God will not forever suffer injustices by wicked tyrants against those who have no defense? And again, that's why I used the introduction that I did about this, the, the Me Too movement. It is the exact same type of dynamic that is present within nations. The conditions present within ancient Israel are the exact conditions that existed in these other types of nations. And it's where you have wealthy and elite, ruling and merchant class, that is creating political and economic institutions that just continue to bring the wealth of that nation to the elite ruling and merchant class. That is the dynamic. Remember, the, and then it was more it was spelled out even more so in when we went through Amos. Nations tend to move in this way. Those in power and those that are wealthy get to a point where they just keep accumulating the power and accumulating the wealth and eventually become, the, the rest of the nation is serving them and they become oppressive to the rest of the nation. This is the cycle of nations. There was a book called The Fall of Nations, published in 2013, uh, written by two guys, Ace Moglu, I think he's a, an African, and Robinson. And they go through, in the book, it's, a, it's an incredibly interesting book, especially if you're reading to the prophets at the time, and they go through history, and they go back centuries, and look at all of these, these nations and cultures, and they look at the nations that have thrived, and the nations that have fallen, and they have seen this, it's the exact same dynamic. They say this, nations fail today because they're extractive, so extractive means pulling things out. Nations fail today because their extractive economic institutions do not create the incentives needed for people to save, invest, and innovate. Extractive political institutions support these economic institutions by cementing the power of those who benefit from the extraction. Extractive economic and political institutions, though their details vary under different circumstances, are always at the root of this failure. And they continue, countries become failed states not because of their geography or their culture, but because of the legacy of extractive institutions. Institutions, economic and political, that just continue to pull out from the nation and don't build it up through its people. Which concentrate power and wealth in the hands of those controlling the state, opening the way for unrest, strife, and civil war. Extractive institutions also directly contribute to the gradual fall, failing of the state by neglecting investment in the most basic public services. The, uh, well, I'm not going to get into specific examples because I'm running out of time. I'd encourage you to read the book, but there are, they talk about Egypt, they talk about North Korea. The former president, not Kim Jong-un, but Kim Jong-il, um, because they could track all these things going into the country, 
he had, in one year, had $800,000 worth of cognac. $800,000 worth of cognac. Anyway, go into all these details. You know, God warned Israel that this would happen when they asked for a king. When they were released, when they were freed from Egypt, they were a people ruled by a representative government built around clans and tribes and all served God. And they failed to honor and worship and serve and believe God. And they, and they kept, they, they were a, a, a dysfunctional nation for centuries. And then they asked for a king. And God says this, these will be the way of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks. You shall be his slaves. And that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Here's what I'm saying. The way of the world and the way of the nations, whether we're talking about individual tyrants and oppressors or entire nations, the cycle of injustice of rich, powerful political elites, and you can, this is, I mean, chapter 17 through, through 18 of Revelation, the final city of Babylon that Jesus Christ himself will destroy, moves towards injustice and oppression. But God does not suffer it forever. It's encouraging to read this book, The Fall of Nations, because you just see people do rise up. Justice will rule. And if that nation doesn't, the next one, it just is a cycle. And, and, and I'm bringing it into this big picture because all of our suffering at some level is a consequence of an evil oppressor. It may be manifested in an evil oppressor, a single human being, or, a, or an entity of oppressors. But ultimately, it comes back to the, the strong man. Jesus called him the strong man in the Gospels and says, unless somebody comes and ties up and binds the strong man, you will not be free. And one stronger must come. One stronger must come. And Jesus says that he is the strong man. Jesus is the one that has overcome the strong man. See, he's conquered death. And the greatest weapon, and N.T. Wright writes about this extensively, it's, it's, stuff is great. The ultimate weapon of the tyrant is death. And Jesus has conquered it. And the ultimate expression of the ultimate strong man, Satan himself, is death. And Jesus went into death, he went into oppression, he went into injustice, he was killed by the people that he created, he was killed by a, a, a government, two governments, that were established to do justice, 
the Jewish government, which betrayed him because he was their king, and the Roman government, which betrayed him because he said that he was king. And so Jesus went into the full expression of human suffering and even asked God at the Garden of Gethsemane, which we looked at last week, God, if, if it is at all possible, please take this away from me, but your will be done, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. And so we can approach our suffering in two different ways. We can approach our suffering with a corrupt soul. And when, if, if you've come to know Jesus Christ sincerely, then he has put his spirit within you. He has regenerated you. He has made you righteous. But we can still live in the flesh. And to live in the flesh is to live on the basis of our, of our perceptions and feelings and loves that are not organized around faith in, his, in the work of God through Christ, but organized around simply by what we see. And if that's the case, then we start to make decisions out of fear and anger and anxiety. Those aren't faith. And that will lead to more sin and more suffering and will prolong the experience but that's a maturing process that Jesus Christ has in us as well because it's when we see that anger and fear and anxiety are, are playing such a large role. Sometimes we enter into this, into this way of life, we don't even know how to interpret or put words to our feelings. And that's one of the great things the redemption group does is it helps you stop and, and, and think and put words to these feelings that you've been basing your decisions upon for your entire life. And you say, whoa, so that's what anxiety and fear is. That's what anger and lust and jealousy and greed do. I didn't even know those things were in me. So you, you, you have to put words. So the maturing process that Christ has us in through suffering is oftentimes for our good so that we can identify where, our, where we are still living by the flesh or if we don't know Jesus Christ at all, where we are completely fleshly and our souls are completely corrupt. And, and, and God has promised us righteousness, which means not just something that we get when we go to heaven, but an eternal life now where our righteousness is a way of living life in this world where our minds are free and our relationships with human beings are good and we are experiencing prosperity. Amen. That is what Christ is offering. Ultimately, the world is going to get to a place, and we're just part of this nation, and as a nation, we're a part of nations. The world is going to get to a place where there is one government, and it is going to be oppressive, and it is called Babylon in Scripture. And it's going to be ruled by the Antichrist, and it's going to be the ultimate expression of a ruling elite that is there for itself and not for the nations of the world. And there's only going to be one hope for the destruction of that nation and for justice to come into the world. And that's when Jesus is coming. We will experience suffering in this world because we are a part of a bigger, grander story. And what Christ is offering is an ultimate freedom from that suffering. Yep. But until then, it's a way of living life in this world in a righteous and fulfilling manner that isn't controlled by the circumstances. I read some of the you know, the settlement this week was announced for the bankruptcy settlement for the clergy abuse that has occurred over decades in the Catholic Church here in the Twin Cities. 
and reading the testimonies of these people, you could tell there's just, there was a, there was, the, the abuse had, had been over for sometimes many decades, but the weight of oppression and memory of that abuse was still haunting them. And some of them were waiting for this day of vindication. And you could tell that there was a, I mean, there was a, a, a huge expression of emotion on Thursday when it was announced because they felt some vindication. And here's the message of the gospel. And it takes some processing to grasp this message so that the, the feelings, the perceptions, the feelings, our loves, that the gospel provides in order to free us from oppression is indeed there in the gospel for us right now. That's why he says in Colossians chapter 1, may you know the power of God in Christ so that you can endure. Endure means you're going through suffering. Endure with joy and patience and thanksgiving. 